what I'm talking about is the cognitive work that we do in seeing patients, right? That generates procedures. It generates pathology. It generates anesthesia. It generates radiology. It generates pharmacy. It generates infusions. But it's, a, it's almost like a pyramid. And the, the, what we're faced with going forward is what happens when there's less need for endoscopy. A lot of those ancillaries start to contract. Dr. Scott Ketover, President and CEO of uh, Minji, Minnesota Gastroenterology. I'm so honored to have you on the Scope Forward show. I want to first warmly welcome you. Thank you, Praveen. I'm, I'm happy to be here. You and I have known each other for a while and have crossed paths along with several others to talk about the future of GI and where we think the, uh, the practice of GI medicine is going. So I'm very happy to participate and answer your questions. And as much as information as I can provide, I'm also interested in, I watch a lot of the videos that you produce so that I can, I can learn something new uh, along the way. I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation. Since the last time we did an interview, which was for the Scope Forward book, the GI landscape has changed uh, dramatically. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what do you think? Sure. Well, no one could have predicted COVID or a pandemic or lockdowns or, or what happened since we talked pre-COVID. And that has had a dramatic uh, impact uh, in a couple of areas. One, it proved for gastroenterologists, particularly those in independent practice, how vulnerable we are in terms of our revenue. You know, a year ago at the, at the height of the lockdowns, there was essentially very little uh, ambulatory endoscopy going on, which is, at least from a financial viewpoint, the lifeblood of current, today's current GI practices. And so it was a quick awakening to think that revenue could be down significantly for the year, which in the independent world drops right to the personal incomes of the physicians. For physicians in an employed setting, I'm sure they were challenged because their entire institution was challenged. So COVID was a a rude awakening, but it also caused us to step back and say, so our vulnerabilities, which we had talked about theoretically in the past, are now real. If we can't see patients face-to-face, what do we do? How do we provide care? How do we take care of our patients? How do we take care of our employees? How do we take care of ourselves? <laughs> and uh, we'll talk more about that because pre-COVID, you had mentioned that uh, you know, diversify from colonoscopy and you've got to focus on the entire GI tract, but I'll come to that in a bit. First, I want to talk about uh, private equity uh, in gastroenterology. The last I've heard, and uh, this is as of this week, that almost 50% of uh, DHPA or the Digestive Health Physicians Association uh, members, uh, they're in some form of PE umbrella. Is that accurate? Did you expect to see this rate of acceleration? I actually did expect it, and, and that's because it's a very attractive model for both small and large practices. Large practices, of course, have the advantage of being the platform to which you can add on other practices and, and grow that medical services organization. So I, I'm not surprised by the attractiveness of these relationships. And I see certainly reasons why many practices would do it. Going back to pre-COVID, you told me that you would hired Deloitte and you know, Minji evaluated private equity and decided not to go for it. Now, given the market changes, are you staying with your decision or uh, are you reconsidering 
uh, you know, that decision? First of all, we are staying with our decision, but I'm not sure that the change in the market had a big influence on, on the decision one way or the other. I thought for a long time that there are essentially three um, reasons why a practice would want a private equity partner. You know, one is certainly to have the business acumen of those who are not um, clinicians, but know how to help develop, run, and grow businesses. And I think that's an important asset for a lot of practices if they don't have it internally or don't have it through other means that private equity can provide that. I also think it's a great opportunity for practices that want an infusion of capital to uh, spur their growth, uh, whether it's in hard assets or it's just growing their geographic footprint and their importance in their communities. And lastly, I think the reason is for physicians who are in independent practice, we recognize that our asset is us. And so when we stop practice and walk away, that asset vaporizes. And unlike a lot of private businesses where you can build a business for decades, and then when it's time to retire, you have an asset that you can transfer to somebody else. You can't transfer your professional work to someone else when you stop working. And so for a lot of physicians, private equity is an opportunity to take that sort of illiquid asset of themselves and turn part of it into a liquid asset and and take money off the table to invest in other things in their life. Mm -hmm. So I think when practices look at private equity, they should really be thinking about, you know, what is it, what motivates them? Is it the dollars? Is it the uh, business acumen? Is it uh, the MSO and its impact on the community and ultimately how it affects patient care? So from a growth perspective, what is the growth strategy for Minji from this point? I'm glad you asked that question because um, our our strategic plan includes growing our geographically as well as in service lines. And we're uh, looking at opportunities right now at expanding outside of the Twin Cities metro area uh, in terms of both developing um, facilities and hiring physicians to be uh, Minji physicians working in places that are not within the umbrella of commuting distance uh, to Minneapolis and St. Paul. It's an interesting question for us to ask ourselves why. How important is it to do that, to expand that footprint? Does it solidify our place in in our current marketplace? Does it give us more leverage with payers? Does it to help hospital or does it help us defend against hospitals who might think that they should hire their own GI employed physicians? And we're wrestling with that now because it's not easy to duplicate what you have you know, let's say 90 or 120 miles away from where you sit, where it's not a place that is affiliated or easy to get to. Coming to, uh, you know, a couple of key uh, areas why people consolidate or practices or businesses consolidate uh, in healthcare or in private practice is that leverage that you get with insurance companies and then with uh, health systems or local hospitals. How have you managed to uh, negotiate with insurances and the health systems in your region. Yeah, good, uh, good point as well. So that type of leverage I've come to uh, accept is what I would think of as, as negative leverage. And the provider groups, you know, the leverage really is saying we, will, um, we won't join that network or we'll leave that network or we'll leave that hospital system unless we uh, you know, can negotiate a contract that we think is, is favorable to us. But it's, a, it's sort of a, a binary decision, right? You're either in the network or in the, in the hospital system environment or you're not. 
if you leave, you certainly don't do anything to enhance the care within those systems you're trying to negotiate with. Um, however, it's been really the biggest and, and major lever that independent practice has when negotiating with payers. I'm starting to appreciate that um, even at our size, you know, with uh, 85 gastroenterologists and you know, 900 employees and you know, nine locations, et cetera, as big as we are, we're dwarfed by the, the payers and the hospital system. And even the, the PE-backed MSOs, 300, 500, 1,000 physicians, Yes, that's a lot of leverage in staying in a network or leaving a network, but it doesn't yet prove what the positive side of that leverage is. And I think that's really the future of where we're going is to see how do we make our leverage positive, mean we're bringing more value to those we have relationships with, and we're steering what happens in value-based care rather than reacting to it. Mm-hmm. Do you think our uh, dependence on uh, insurance systems will reduce over time or will stay the same or increase? You know, GI still remains a largely referral-based practice. Most areas, gastroenterologists are dependent upon primary care referrals for patients. We have a strategy trying to increase our our self-referred or independent patients and families that, that come to see us. But I think insurance uh, and third-party payers will still have a large role. There's some talk now, you know, about expanding Medicare down to, you know, age 60 or, or potentially age 55, what impact that would have. It would certainly increase the percentage of government pay patients that we see and change the payer mix. Um, but I don't think we're going to do away with commercial insurance companies in the near future and certainly not in my career. Mm-hmm. Question is, if you consider digital health, about $20 billion plus dollars were raised during the COVID period in 2020 and uh, over 600 plus deals. The way I look at it is these companies seem to be servicing the same patient or you know, the same consumer that GI and other specialties are servicing, but in a completely different model. So they seem to be figuring out uh, newer business models and, and newer ways, while uh, GI and other practices seem to want to do more of what they've done in the past. Am I thinking this correctly or am I completely wrong? No, I think you're on the right track. I think that we've been very fortunate for you know, two decades that endoscopy procedures have driven the revenue side of independent GI practice. So Procedures themselves need to be done, obviously, face-to-face or in person. But there's threats to that, to that volume, certainly as technology improves, um, different screening methods as opposed to screening colonoscopy. There will likely be more and more screening methods that help to stratify risk for individual patients and families, and that will have a negative impact on screening colonoscopy volume. I often talk with my partners about the fact that If you look at just what we are compensated for in our professional services, it's way less than half of our total compensation. So from a financial viewpoint, the work of a gastroenterologist is compensated by the ancillaries that the professional services generate, whether that's, so what I'm talking about is the cognitive work that we do in seeing patients, right? That generates procedures. It generates pathology it generates anesthesia, it generates radiology, it generates pharmacy, 
It generates infusions, but it's, a, it's almost like a pyramid. And the, the, what we're faced with going forward is what happens when there's less need for endoscopy? A lot of those ancillaries start to contract. And so for the gastroenterologist today, the opportunity cost to move away from screening colonoscopy is still too high. And what I'm trying to help my practice plan for is let's not wait until that opportunity cost drops significantly to spur us into other areas. Let's think about how we can develop the future anticipating that that opportunity cost will come down. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned in the past uh, that uh, the gastroenterologist must own the GI tract. Like, so you, you must come up with programs that service the entire uh, GI tract and uh, we must move away uh, from colonoscopy. Can you share more? Yeah, I started to think about this years ago, actually, when I started to do capsule endoscopy. And the given imaging pill cam, the original commercial name was M2A, capital M, number two, capital A. And what that stood for was mouth to anus. Um, And shortly after they came on the market, they realized that was not a consumer friendly (laughs) aim to have on their product. So they switched away from M2A, but it, it often has made me think that, you know, the GI tract really, it starts at the tongue. And so when you swallow something, that's in the purview of the GI tract. And we should look at what we do treating from, you know, swallowing a bolus to the, uh, the exit of um, the unused portions of what we've swallowed and see that GI tract is really our entire domain. But again, the opportunity cost to move resources away from procedures is still too high for most people to invest. Um, we've tried in our practice and I, I think have been successful in looking at creating centers of excellence around non-colonoscopy issues, advanced esophageal disease, inflammatory bowel disease, liver disease, um, functional and motility disorders, celiac disease. These are treating more of the patient than just the endoscopic portion. And I think we really need to look at that. Uh, We really need to figure out ways that we can interface better with ENT or pulmonary medicine or even urology and colorectal surgery when we're looking at pelvic floor issues. Um, but again, I think what is delaying that movement is really the, the opportunity cost to move away from the, the highly reimbursed endoscopy procedures. So how is that uh, shift going to happen, Dr. Ketova? Because there's so much dependence on the reimbursement and we don't see it quickly going away, it's steadily going away. Uh, so there is no drive to take immediate action. Uh, everyone keeps thinking that it is on the horizon and maybe that horizon is really far out. Maybe it is not at all. Uh, but, you know, when do you think this shift will happen to doing these uh, other aspects of GI care, which obviously comes at an opportunity cost? Sure. And, and you know, the counter argument is, right, on a population basis, there are too few gastroenterologists in the nation. Right? We need more gastroenterologists than we have today. And so that would, you would think that gives us more leverage. Right? There's more cancer screening to be done. There's more endoscopic treatment we can do. There's more infusible drugs. So 
you would think we would be sitting in a pretty good seat in terms of leverage of our clinical skill. But we're competing with behemoths that have you know, billions of dollars of, of assets and are really looking at, while they talk a lot about looking at quality and outcomes, they're really looking at the cost of care. How do we deliver what, what is assumed to be reasonably high quality care nationwide? How do we just deliver that to the population? So I think to get gastroenterologists there, we're going to have to come up with a new way for us to practice our skills, our cognitive skills of patient care that separates it from the fee-for-service piecemeal revenue production. And so my personal thought on this is that the winner in all of this is data, that data is king. And we see this happening um, even practically today. There are now 17 companies around the world that are creating COVID-19 vaccination passports, apps for your smartphone. You know, the explosion of electronic and digital data is also happening in medicine, but clinicians haven't felt it yet. And I think that there's an opportunity for gastroenterologists, whether they're already in MSOs or private equity-backed practices, to still integrate in another fashion around data around having a huge common database that is controlled by the gastroenterologists and their entities that can look into clinical questions and really prove where cost effectiveness can be achieved and where clinical benefit is really present. Mm -hmm. Do you have any digital health uh, initiatives going on at Minji? Well, certainly we're deeply involved in, in telehealth. We have used our EHR for two decades, but I see that this is really going to come from the outside. I don't think the EHR vendors are going to move into the database management of clinical issues quick enough. I do think there will be third parties that come together. And if gastroenterologists don't pool their resources to do this, then I fear that the vacuum will be filled by the large uh, companies that already exist in the tech space. And then we will just become another sort of cog in that wheel. We are generating the data. We are doing the patient care. And yet that data is locked currently in our EHRs. We can't really mine it for use to help patients to move the ball forward. And we need to find a way to do it ourselves. Um, so when you ask if Minji is currently doing that, we're very much looking into the opportunity to do that and talking to those who could help us. But it's not just going to be Minji. It has to be Minji and tens of other GI practices, whether they're with private equity or not, independent private equity, even hospital systems. We have to put together the network that allows a one database around GI conditions to lead this change. I want to ask another question on uh, digital health. Let's say you have IBS patients. Now, uh, you are treating them in a certain way, you know, right now. And one of the things that I've heard you say earlier uh, is, is that uh, the way you can address IBS is maybe in partnership with someone with sleep medicine or psychotherapy or cognitive behavior therapy and addressing the, you know, the condition differently. So that's on one side with you as a GI practice. Uh, but on the other side are uh, several startups 
that are helping the very same patients through digital means. Like, so there is really no physician. It is through an app uh, and there is an art- artificial intelligence algorithm probably going on. And there are people, yes, maybe there are clinicians, uh, but they're sitting maybe in some other part of the world and they're, they're creating this. So the solution is one to many. Have you thought of how competition for you will evolve in this light? Or uh, do you not worry about that at all uh, at the current stage? Well, it, it is a concern. And I, with respect to IBS, um, I'm actually an investor in a company that provides food, meals for uh, IBS to guide them through the FODMAP diet um, and to get the patients to a better place. But that's still a one-on-one, right? It's a company and a patient. And it's, a, it's a subscription model. But I think you're right. With artificial intelligence and, and databases of what works clinically, um, patients will seek that out. Long before Western medicine accepted things like acupuncture, patients were already there. Right? They went for acupuncture. They went for hypnosis therapy. They went for um, different kinds of massage therapy and, and things that years ago we used to consider on the uh, loose edge of, of actual clinical help but patients found relief and that will continue to happen. I think the question you're focusing on is, well, there are entities out there that can develop electronic means to bring that help into the patient's hand, into their smartphone and bypass the physician altogether. And how will GI practice cope with that? It will likely mean that we will focus more on the the disease entities that require more of a direct relationship with the patient driven through evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, this whole COVID period uh, has been a very reflective time for many, especially in healthcare. Again, I've heard you say many times in the past that healthcare is a higher calling. Uh, And I'm sure, uh, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of doctors in the space, uh, you must have thought uh, and reflected on why this is upon us and uh, how medicine could have been different and uh, how a physician's role might evolve or must evolve. Uh, but overall, I want to ask you, you know, did your thoughts on the future of GI take a different shape during this period? Uh, and again, maybe at a personal level, your own role, you know, going forward on what you'd like to do based on how GI care might evolve. Yes, it, it, first of all, it has changed. My, my thinking and, and, and feeling has changed. But pre-pandemic, right? Uh, if, if I turned on uh, Netflix and watched the movie Contagion, um, it was science fiction. And yet there were uh, people in the, in the medical and scientific field who believed that that could happen. And most of us went about our lives thinking that, nah, not in my lifetime, that won't happen. That's something that's happened in the past and, and we can protect against that. What the pandemic taught us was that in our connected world, which uh, Tom Friedman talked about well over a decade ago, um, that something that happens literally on the other side of the world can be in your community in less than 24 hours. And so um, the rapidity with which these things can happen is phenomenal. And we should, as we come through this pandemic and hopefully uh, you know, sometime this year, begin to enjoy our social lives and our uh, get out of our homes and out of our masks, et cetera, um, not think that we're done. 
that uh, I'm now a believer that there will be another one and another one and another one, particularly as the, we become closer and closer to individuals around the planet. That has shifted my thinking uh, somewhat about patient care to try and think more broadly about populations and how we improve disease management with populations, which still filters down to the individual one-on-one -on -one relationship. But how do we structure our healthcare delivery so that we can improve the health and well-being of populations at the same time? Yeah. What does the future of GI look like from this point? Short term remains quite, looks quite good, actually. I think that there is still a lot of reason for uh, physicians, practices, uh, uh, hospitals to invest in uh, endoscopic uh, units into procedures. I think that we are on the cusp of seeing really good therapeutics for diseases we hadn't had uh, anything in the past. Now we're looking at you know, treating NASH and fibrotic liver disease with uh, drugs, whether they be infusibles or oral drugs. So as the practice of GI keeps moving forward, in the short term, I think there will remain a large emphasis on procedures, and I think that's appropriate. But I also think we have to step back and say, how do we do our cognitive work better? How do we devote time to developing the programs that really enhance somebody's life as opposed to just treat them endoscopically from a surgical perspective? Those are tough questions, but I think the future of GI remains bright because, uh, as I've said, if it goes in your mouth, it's in our domain, and we should accept that and look for ways to keep people healthy. With that future in mind, what actions must people take, must gastroenterologists take today? What is the foundation that must be laid uh, today in order to make such a future happen where GI care can mean uh, you know, much more than uh, endoscopies, but everything from the mouth to the anus? So we're still in a siloed world. You know, my practice, your practice, this hospital, this system, right? We, we still have a great deal of silos in the delivery of GI care. We've been traditionally concerned and afraid to share our data with other silos because it either weakens us or strengthens them. And I think we need to get beyond that. I think we need to look at these individual silos and say, how do we create the network of these silos that makes all of them better? And I'm really focused on data. I think there, there will be, and is coming soon, the opportunity to network practices, whether they're independent, employed, backed by private equity, to network the data collection, the aggregation, the analysis, and the clinical use of data in a way that benefits everybody, all of the practices, all of the systems, and most importantly, the patients. Thank you very much, Dr. Ketover. Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to share that I did not ask? No, not specifically that you didn't ask, but I will say that uh, I think you're doing a phenomenal job um, with, you know, certainly the follow-up to your book, uh, you know, as well as all of these interviews and, and keeping us informed. And I think it's, uh, I, I learn way more than I give. So this is one of those areas where you've helped me uh, be a taker uh, as much as a giver. So thank you.
I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so much for saying so. Dr. Ketova, this has been uh, amazing. And I'm sure uh, the GI community will learn a lot from this interview. Uh, thank you very much once again for uh, doing this interview. Thank you as well. Thank you.